One of the things you learn in the army early on is that you never really arrive. When you arrive at basic training, you you realize, or you're told quickly, you don't know anything. You have to learn how to how to talk. You have to learn how to dress. You have to learn how to make your bed. You have to learn how to walk right. You have to learn how to shoot a rifle, how to clean a rifle, how to throw a hand grenade, do first aid, set up landmines. And then you have to learn to put all that stuff together and, and do it as an infantry unit. And, and then once you get all that down and you graduate, you go off to your unit and you think, I've got it all down. I'm a, I know how to do it. I'm a soldier now. Then you arrive at your unit and you learn you have to relearn how to talk because every unit has slightly different lingo than what you learn at basic training. You have to, to relearn a little bit about how to dress because each unit has slightly different standards about how, to, how you dress. And you have to relearn how to do your infantry stuff because... Every unit does everything slightly different. And then you get that down and you think you're good. And, and then you have to learn other things. You have to learn how to repel out of a helicopter and repel down the side of a building. And then when you get all of that down, you go to different schools. You learn have to, have to learn how to, how to lead. You have to learn how to lead a squad then a, or a team, then a squad. And, and all in all, it's just a, a constant process of moving on to the next thing. Because when you get one thing down, it's time to, to go on to the next. There's not any end to the learning. There's not any end to all the stuff that needs to be done. A soldier's work is never done. It just goes on and on and on. And that's not unlike what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. As disciples of Jesus, we are constantly learning, constantly growing, constantly Doing and, and nothing ever really gets to a place where we come to an end and say, well, I've arrived. I mean, we, we get saved and then we have to learn how to read the Bible. We have to learn how to pray and we have to learn how to talk and how to live and how to act. And then we start getting active in the church and doing the things that, that we're supposed to do to reach our community for Jesus. And, and once we get into that, I mean, there's just no it. There are always more lost people to be saved. There are always more prodigals that need to be restored. There are always more broken hearts that needed to be healed. There are always more captives that need to be set free. And there are always ruptured relationships that need to be healed. We don't, we don't arrive as disciples of Jesus and we don't complete the work. We, we never finish. It is a work that goes on and on and on until Jesus comes back. So what we do is we have to persevere in faithfully performing the work. Right? We start and then we don't stop until Jesus calls us home or until Jesus himself returns. But if we are going to be disciples like that, that are active in doing the work and performing the work and staying with it, there are certain necessities that have to be a part of our lives, certain necessities that we must have if we are going to faithfully perform the work until Jesus comes back. Let's look at some of those tonight in Ezra. Open your Bible to Ezra 5. That is page 365 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find Ezra 5, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Ezra 5 and 1 says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of idol prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and 
Shethar, Bozni, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and to finish this wall? Then, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing the building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they would not, so they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. Now look over at chapter 6, verse 14. It says, And the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of, of the month of Adar, which is the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, the rest of the descendants of the captivity, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and goodness. Thank you for the opportunity we have tonight to gather here in your house to study your word, to learn, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Guide us tonight, Father, that we would have open hearts and open ears ready to hear what you have for us. Strengthen us in the work. Lord, there are many in our community that desperately need Jesus. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that care about the fact that people around us are going to die and go to hell if they don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Give us, Father, a, a steadfastness in the work that we would do it and keep on doing it until you call us home or until Jesus returns. Father, fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you won't say or done. Have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I was tempted because we read in, in 6 that they finished the temple to call this completing the work. But, of course, the book goes on. They complete the temple, but then Ezra actually comes himself, and there's more work to be done. That's why I say the work is never finished. There's one thing that you do, and you may finish that, but then there's something else later that also has to be done. The work is, is always ongoing. We never get to the spot as disciples of Jesus where we just sit back and we say, Boom, I've arrived spiritually, I've done everything that there was to do, I'm done, and now is my time off from this point on. Right? We don't enter our Sabbath in this life, we wait till we go to the next, and that's when our Sabbath begins. Now, it's been 16 years since Ezra 4 and 24. Remember, the work was stopped in Ezra 4, 24, and they went on for 16 years doing other things. God's used the prophet Zechariah and Haggai to stir the people up to go back to the work. They rise up and they begin to build. Ezra 6 ends with the temple being rebuilt, the worship of God being restored. And as I was studying these two chapters, I think we learn four necessities right, to being able to faithfully perform the work of God. If we are to, to do it and keep on doing it, these four elements are, are necessary. There's no way we can do it faithfully, we can do it consistently, without these four things being present. Right, the first is the Word of God. I've talked a lot about this in previous weeks. We will talk about it more in, in other weeks. This is just something we're not going to get away from because of the importance of God's Word in our lives. Now, the importance of God's Word is seen really throughout the passage. Right, First, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the people are stopping the work, and yet God sends prophets who come and bring a message from God to the people that stirs them up back to do the work. Now look at Ezra 6 and 14. It says, The elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet 
and Zechariah, the son of Ido. Now it's interesting because in Ezra 5 and 1, the prophets come and they preach. In Ezra 5 and 2, they, they help them. So it seems like they begin the building and the prophets jump in and they're building too. Well, then when you get over here, you find that they're not just building, they're still prophesying, they're still preaching, and it prospers, it benefits, it helps the people. Now, we're not told specifically what their messages were at this time, but I think given what we see in other prophets and even what we've seen in Haggai when we looked at it, probably their, their preaching was a combination of promise and prophecy. Right? Promise was built on what God had already said. The Lord had said that if you seek Him with all your heart, you'll find Him. The Lord has said that if you devote yourself to Him and you keep His ways, these are the things He'll do for you. Keep up the work. Stay faithful to Him. Here's what God has promised. Right? Also, prophesying at that time, they were just saying, here's what the Lord is saying to us today. They were bringing these current messages from God for the people and it was beneficial to them. It helped them in their life, kept them stirred up for the work, spiritually prepared to do the things that God wanted them to do. And then finally, look at verse chapter 16, verse 18 and 19. It says, They assigned priests to their divisions and Levites to their divisions, walk over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Right, And so what you find here is that once the temple is rebuilt and they begin to restart the worship of God, they don't just take off and say, well, this is what I think we ought to do. I think, I think you can be a priest and I think we'll offer these kind of sacrifices and hey, we'll, we'll choose tomorrow to be a holy day and this is what we'll do. Rather, what they did was they went back to whatever copies of God's word they had and they said, OK, who are supposed to, to offer the sacrifices? Okay, Levites, you're a registered Levite, and you're a registered Levite, and you're a registered Levite, and, and you meet the qualifications listed here, so, so you guys go over there and do that. And, and we're going to need singers, and you're listed as one, and you're listed as one, so you go over here and do that. And there are sacrifices that they've made. They've looked in the law, and they said, okay, there's certain kind of sacrifices we're supposed to make. Let's go and get those. And they kept looking and said, oh, look, it's time for Passover. We really probably didn't keep the Passover while we were in Babylon. It's time that we, we do that as well. And so what we see in these two verses is that they are being diligent to do what God has said. They are being diligent to obey God's work. And so all throughout what they're doing in chapters 5 and 6, the Word of God is central to everything that's happening. That the Word of God is stirring them up. The Word of God is profiting them. The Word of God is guiding them on the decisions they make and the things that they do. As we seek to do the work of God, it has to be that way for us as well. The Word of God always has to be central in all that we are as a church of Jesus Christ. It always has to be central to what we do as we try to do the work. Right? Because again, as I've said in several messages, and I'll say all throughout the series, we seek to do the work of saving the lost, restoring the prodigal, healing broken hearts, setting captives free, and reconciling ruptured relationships. And as we seek to do that work, the only sure guide for us is the Word of God. So we always have to be sure that is central to everything that is going on in our life. Now, the Bible, and part of the reason the Scripture is even given to us, is for this very thing, to be the guide as we seek to do the work of God. Let me show you this in a familiar passage. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3. 
It's page 915. Second Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profit for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's a familiar passage. Right? And, and what we see is that Scripture is, the idea that Scripture, one, is inspired by God means that it's God-breathed. I mean, that's the overall picture, is that God breathed His words into holy men who then wrote those things down for, for those at that time, but for us as well. And what God inspired them to write down, it was profitable, it was beneficial for certain things. First things it tells us is, is doctrine. Now, doctrine is essentially what we believe. I mean, there's a lot you could put into that, but the basics of it is what we believe about God, about salvation, and about life in general. Right? So, when it comes to seeing souls saved, seeing prodigals restored, seeing broken hearts healed, seeing relation, ruptured relationships fixed, seeing the captive set free... God's Word gives us the foundation. It gives us everything we need to know about what's going on and how we can help people be set free. Also, it's, it's profitable for reproof. right? So not only does it teach us what is right, reproof means it shows us what's wrong. Uh, and, and reproof is actually kind of a, a strong word. It's almost like it's confrontational. right? So Scripture is confrontational in some ways when it shows us what's wrong. And, and what I think about that is Scripture doesn't negotiate with us, right? Scripture doesn't say, do you think that's okay? It, does this hurt your feelings? Do you, would that be okay for you to do? Would you do this? Scripture just says, this is what God's like. This is how what salvation is. This is who Christ is. This is what Jesus has done. This is how you live. Right? It presents it in a very black and white, this is how it is kind of way. And if you're not living that way or believing that way, then what happens is when you read it, it's kind of startling. It, it's, it's confrontational. It's like, boom, you're wrong. Not let's negotiate and we'll come to an understanding. No, it, Scripture says you're wrong. God's Word is right. So it shows us what's wrong. But it's also profitable for correction. So where reproof is exposing the error, correction is how to fix it. Right? So Scripture doesn't just say what you believe is wrong and leave us there. Scripture says what you believe is wrong, here's what you should believe instead. Scripture doesn't just say you're living wrong. Scripture says you're living wrong, here's how you're supposed to live instead. And again, it's all very authoritative. It doesn't say let's work it out. It says this is what's right. Do this and you'll live. And then it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. Right? How, how to live a righteous life. How do we become righteous? How do we live righteous? How do we react to stressors in a righteous way? How do we do righteousness in our life? Scripture is the rule and the standard for that. It teaches us what is right and how we are in our lives, our interactions with others, and in all things. And it also thoroughly or equips us for every good work. So you and I, as believers, if we're in the Word, we're disciples of Jesus, we're Spirit-filled, we're studying the Bible, through the Bible, you and I will be thoroughly equipped for the good work of saving the lost. Through the Bible, you and I will be thoroughly equipped for the good work of restoring the prodigals. Through the Bible, you and I will be thoroughly equipped for the good work of healing broken hearts. 
Through the Bible, you and I will be thoroughly equipped for the good work of setting captives free. Through the Bible, you and I will be thoroughly equipped for the good work of reconciling ruptured relationships. Now that's significant, right? Because it's not just the pastor that it equips to do this. It's not just missionaries that it equips to do this. It's not just deacons that it equips to do this. That the the man or the woman of God, essentially just the disciple of Jesus Christ. Right? You and I are at an equal standing as far as who can do the work of God. Now we may do the work differently and we may do different things in doing the work. But we're all equal in doing the work. In our responsibility and our equipping and everything that we have, everything that we need to be able to do those things, we all have that through the, the Spirit that fills us, the promises that are given to us, and through the Word of God as we study. Now, I want to go into verse chapter 4 too, quickly like. Um, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, are every, every, if you go to a preacher's ordination service, at some point this will be read. I charge you, therefore, before God the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing, uh, and his kingdom, preach the word. Okay, so that's a, a preacher verse. But I want to share it for us tonight because I want us to understand that this passage, it applies, again, to all of us, not just the preacher. Right? Because how much scripture is profitable for doctrine? Some scripture or all scripture? All scripture. Right? So what we see here, does it have something to say to the preacher? Absolutely. Does it have something to say to those who aren't preachers? Absolutely. Right? So what does it tell us if we're not a preacher? Right? First, I want you to notice the charge. The charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at the at his appearing and his kingdom. Right? Now, oh, I've lost my train of thought here. Um, the idea of the charge is essentially that God is watching. Right? So for the preacher. Every time I stand up to preach, the picture from this verse is God is watching. Jesus is watching. And there is an air of accountability that's kind of there. They're watching, not as spectators to give a golf clap because it was done well, but they're watching to ensure that I'm being faithful. They're watching to ensure that I'm doing all the things I'm meant to do as a preacher when I preach. But here's the application for everyone. If we, sh- if we seek to save the lost, restore the prodigal, heal broken hearts, set captives free, reconcile ruptured relationships, guess what we have to do? At some point we have to share the Bible, don't we? Right? If the Bible's the foundation for it, then at some point I have to go to them and say, here's what the Bible says. And if I'm sharing the Bible, then this charge applies to me. That means every time we share the Bible, whether we're teaching, whether we're trying to reach a lost person, whether we're trying to help restore a prodigal, help find somebody, find freedom, whatever we're doing... If we're sharing Scripture, God's watching. And He's watching with an air of accountability to make sure we're using Scripture properly and we're doing all the things with it we're supposed to be doing. So what are we supposed to be doing? Well, the first thing it says is preach the Word. Right? Preach the Word. The Word that was defined in verse 16 and 17 is what we're supposed to, to share. Right? For me, it means I'm supposed to preach the Word. Not my opinions, not my thoughts, not my ideas, not things I think are cool, but the Bible. It means the same thing as we go out to share. As we go out to share, as we go out to do the work of God, what we share is the Word of God. 
We, we don't share what Oprah has to say. We don't share what Dr. Phil has to say. We don't share the GOP talking points. We don't share the DNC talking points. We don't share any of that stuff. Because none of that stuff, none of that stuff is going to save the lost, restore the prodigal, heal broken hearts, set captives free, or restore ruptured relationships. We go out and we share the word. Right? That's the thing. We go out and we share the word. We, it says be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season, I think there's two ideas with it. One, in season and out of season means ready or not, here you come. Right? That's part of it. Tim Landers always taught me, be ready to preach, pray, or die in a moment's notice. Right? Um, and it's not uncommon for like, a preacher's going into a church service for somebody to say, hey, Gerald, you're a preacher, why don't you come up and preach today? Right? And you better, from that moment, be able to whip out your Bible and share from God's Word. Right now, for, for just us, as we go out, what this means for us is we kind of have to always be ready to share the Bible. Right? Because we're not always going to have this advance notice that we're going to meet with someone so that we can study out and have our outline notes and all of these things that we can go and walk them through. Sometimes somebody's just going to say, hey, here's a question. Hey, what do you think about? Hey, can you help me with this? And in that moment, in that instant, we have to whip out our Bibles and we have to share what the Bible says. Right? So we have to be ready in and out of season all the time. In and out of season also carries with the idea of whether people like it or not. Right? So sometimes when we share the Bible, people like it, they respond, they surrender to Scripture, they do what they're supposed to do. Hooray. Sometimes they don't. So what do we do? In the moment where we're pretty sure they're not going to, or where every time we've ever tried it before, they haven't responded to the Scripture. What do we do in that moment? We share the Scripture anyway. We share the Scripture in and out of season. Is it going to be fruitful? That's not up to us to decide. We can't make it fruitful. All we can do is say, thus says the Word of God. It's up to them and God to make it fruitful. So in and out of season, we share it. As we share it, here's what we're seeking to do. To convince, to rebuke, to exhort. Right? To convince, it, it essentially means to show people they're wrong. Right? Not that they're wrong because we think they're wrong. But they're wrong because they're contrary to Scripture. Right? Scripture is the foundation for, for doctrine. They believe something that's not in the Bible. They believe something that's contrary to the Bible. So our job is we, whether we're preaching or whether we're sharing, is to say, here's what you believe, but here's what the Bible says. Do you see how those two things aren't the same? Right? It, it is, again, we're not to say, well, can you, okay, the Bible says this and you believe that, could you meet somewhere here in the middle? No, we're to say, this is what the Bible says. Right? You're wrong because this is what the Bible says. It, it also says rebuke, right? And rebuke, it carries with it a, there's a sternness there. Right? Now, that doesn't mean we have to be jerks, but it means we have to be faithful no matter what. Now, so if somebody comes to you and says, are you saying if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to go to hell? Well, what do we do in that moment? We say, that's what the Bible says, yes. That, that's, that straightness, that this is the way it is, that, that's kind of a rebuke. Now, it doesn't mean we have to yell. It doesn't mean we have to pound the pulpit. Um, it means that we are straight and stern. And yes, this is the way that it is. Exhort. We encourage them. Turn your life around. Right? You, you believe this. The Bible says that. 
change. Just let go of that and believe this. Right? Let go of that and receive Jesus. Turn from that and turn to this. You're living like that, but you should be living like this. So turn from that. That's what exhort means. We, we not only say, hey, this is what the Bible says. We, we do what we can to encourage them to bring their life into conformity with Scripture. Right? And we do it with long-suffering. That's the hard part. It means we don't get to give up on people. Right? I mean, if we're trying to save a lost person, restore a backslider, heal a broken heart, set a captive free, reconcile a ruptured relationship, I mean, how many times might we have to share the same things over and over and over again? Well, the idea of long-suffering means that how many times it takes is what we do. As long as they're going to give us that, that opportunity, we're going to take it. But we're not going to say, well, they haven't listened the last 12 times. They're not going to listen this time. I'm done with you. I'm through. We just say no. Here's what it says. And we do it over and over and over again. And we do it with teaching or the King James, I prefer, says with doctrine. Again, it carries back that idea. We do it with what the Bible says. Right. The Bible is the foundation. So as we we're not again, we're not convincing or rebuking or exhorting with long suffering about anything Anything other than what the Bible says. Uh, We're not trying to convince them to vote our way. We're not trying to convince them to have our preferences or to listen to our music. We, We are trying to convince them to bring their life, their beliefs, their actions into conformity to what God has revealed as right in His Word. So that is what we have to do. If we are to do the work of God, then the Word of God, it must be central to everything. It must be the foundation of our doctrine, of our reproof, of our correction, and our instruction in righteousness. It must be the foundation as we seek to convince, rebuke, and exhort with long-suffering. So as we seek to do the work of God, save the lost, restore the prodigal, heal broken hearts, set captives free, reconcile relationships, we must use the Word. We stay with what the Bible says. Is it popular? Well, not always, because it's going on to say the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. We can't make people accept it. We can't make people believe it. We, but we still teach it. We still share it. This and this alone is what we go for. Right? So the Word of God has to be central to the work of God. We cannot do the work of God. Without the word of God. Can you go ahead and turn back to Ezra 5? So the word of God is the first necessity. The second one is the favor of God. Now the favor of God is something that is free will Baptist. Or really most Baptists in general. We really don't talk about. And that's a shame. Right? The favor of God is, as, is a biblical phrase. And it's a, it's a good phrase. You find it in scripture often. And yet what's happened is, because of, of excesses and abuses by some, we have neglected this idea and basically turned a blind eye to it. The best definition of the word favor is demonstrated delight. Right? The, the favor of God can be described as tangible evidence that that person has received approval from God. Right? Tangible evidence that this person or this group has received The approval of God. Now, the word favor is not found in Ezra 5 or 6, either one. However, the idea is seen all throughout. Right? Look, let me show you this. Look at uh, Ezra 5 and 3. 
At that time, Tact and I, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Chef, Shephar Bozni and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Now, if you remember, in Ezra 4, people came to them with that same sort of an idea. Who told you to do this? And the, what they were trying to do was intimidate them and stop the work. Right? And I think I don't think I'm reading anything in, the, in this passage when I say that was probably the idea here as well. Right? They, this was a it was an attempt at intimidation to make them stop from doing the work. Now this isn't likely the same guy who came to them 16 years prior, but he is from the same people group. He is from the same people of the land that were the enemies of God and His ways. So he comes, he seeks to intimidate them. Verse four it says. Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were contracting, who were constructing this building. And then notice what it says in verse 5. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning the matter. So this guy is the governor of the area, so he likely has some sort of an army, armed people who can make people do what he wants them to do. And he comes to intimidate them, comes to get them to stop, and yet for some reason, for some reason he's not able to. Rather than being able to make them stop, what he decide, what happens is he has to send off a letter. And again, I mean, it's going to take a while, right? The letter's got to go. It's got to be days or weeks and travel to get there. And then the king's going to have to make a search regarding the letter to decide what, what needs to be done. And he's going to write a letter. It's going to be days and weeks on the return. Meanwhile, they're still working. Right, And the wording of why this happened indicates that it's because the eye of their God was upon them. Now, the reason that he could not make them cease the work was that essentially that God was watching. And that God was active in this situation and in their lives. And he prevented that man from being able to stop them from working until a letter came back from the king. That, that, in essence, is, is faith. Right? And we see more and more about it. Uh, we're not going to read it all, but take some time and read Ezra 5, verse 6. It says, here's the copy of the letter that Tat and I sent. And it goes on and he talks about who he is and what he's doing. He talks about the issue that's going on, that the temple is being rebuilt, who these people are, why that they're doing this. He mentions that they had told him that Cyrus, the king of Babylon, had issued a decree to build the house, and that Cyrus had said that gold and silver ought to be given to them in order to make them do it. And he recommends, in verse 17, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made of the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, and whether it is, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build the house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure concerning this matter. And again, I don't think I'm reading into the scripture when I say the guy was somewhat implying you ought to make them stop. Right? When you send the word back that they're going to have to stop, they're going to have to stop. right? And so what happens? King Darius, he, he makes a search. He goes to the archives. He finds the first decree of Cyrus telling people to go back to rebuild the temple. And he agrees with it. He sends his own decree back. And he says, what Cyrus said is right. That's what needs to be done. Provide them with all the gold and the silver that they need out of the king's treasury. Give them everything that they need to be able to make the temple, to build it up, to make the sacrifices. In short, do it. 
right? And he says, um, and then have them pray for us. And then it says in verse 13, Then Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethbuzai, and their companions diligently did according to what the king had sent. Right? They can't argue with the king now. Right? So, what would make, again, a pagan king, what would make a pagan king agree with a decree issued years and years before? It was the favor of God. It was the fact that, again, that God's eye was upon them. That, again, that's favor. And then we see another element of favor. Um, no. Yes. Sorry, 6 and 22. Look at what it says in 6 and 22. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands to the work of the house of God of Israel. Right. So there, why did the king go ahead and do it? Because God was at work. God was doing something in their midst. The king responds the way that he does because God was with them, because of God's favor on his people. Uh, God's favor on his people has re- like legitimate repercussions in life. Right? And this is what the psalmist tells us. The psalmist says, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. But the favor of the Lord is a shield to protect us from our enemies. In a lot of ways, the favor of the Lord is similar to the providence of God. But the favor of the Lord... Um, the providence of God is when God orchestrates events in such a way that they go our way for His glory. Often in a surprising turn of events. Just like what we saw here. This guy comes, he does have an army, he could make them stop, but in a surprising turn of events, he doesn't. The king has every reason to make them stop, but in a surprising turn of events, he not only doesn't make them stop, he issues a decree that they should be given everything that they need. That that is favor, in essence, is what when the Bible speaks of the favor of the Lord, that's what it's talking about. Right, so we see a lot of instances of God's favor in Scripture. Right? God's favor will take a boy sold into slavery by his brothers and make him second in command in the most powerful nation on earth. Right? God's favor will cause your enemies to be at peace with you. God's favor causes those who once enslaved you not only to let you leave, but to give you all their stuff as you go out and you go out. With boldness. But God's favor turned an orphan Jewish girl into the queen of Persia. All of these are instances and illustrations of God's favor. And there are really more and more and more that we would find in Scripture when we look. Now, God's favor is an interesting thing. We can't earn it. We can't demand it. We, we can't make ourselves receive God's favor. It is something that God sovereignly graciously bestows. But even though we cannot earn it, Scripture does say there are things we can do to position ourselves so that God's favor will rest upon us. Right. So let me show you uh, four. One, reverence the Word of God. In Isaiah, it says, For all these things my hand has made, and all, and all those things exist. But on this one I will look on. Right. And so keep in mind the idea of look on is very similar to what we saw in chapter 5 where the eyes of the Lord were upon them. It's the same sort of a picture. God is going to look upon them for their good. So who are the ones that God is going to keep His eye on for their good? It is those, I lost my place, who who are poor and contrite spirit, who are humble, but the one I'm focusing on, who trembles at my word. Right? And I think poor and contrite spirit would go with trembling at the word. Those who are proud and haughty, they don't tremble 
at God's word. Not so. If I want to position myself to receive God's favor, then I have to ask myself, what's my attitude toward God's word? Is it something that I can read and say, I, I might do that, or I don't think I'll do that, and that didn't really apply to me, and I don't want to do that, that makes me uncomfortable? Or when I read God's word and I see that my life is out of sync with God's word, I'm like, oh my word. I, I, better, I better bring myself in. I remember the story in the Old Testament about the, the king, who the young king who has the temple rebuilt, and they're getting started on cleaning it up. And as they do, they find the word of God. They bring it in, and, and the guy says, hey, we found this. Let me read some of it to you. And the Bible says that when the, when the king heard what God had said about how they were supposed to live and the blessings and the cursings that went along with not doing that, it says he trembled. He tore his robe. He threw ashes on his head. And he said, oh, we're in trouble, essentially. We have not done what God has said. What happened? What did God do to that guy? God said, okay, all the curses that I've promised, they are going to happen, but not in your lifetime. You'll live in peace, and when you're gone, all that stuff's going to happen. That's, that's favor. He trembled at the word. God looked upon him favorably and demonstrated his favor. So we reverence the word of God. Secondly, pray for favor from God. It says, I have sought your word with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Okay, in your notes, I have one up here that I don't think is on the screen. Does that say Second Chronicles on your notes there? Okay, Second Chronicles. Ensure my heart is loyal to God. Ensure my, huh? Second um, Chronicles 16 and 9. That's why I'm not an editor, I'm a writer. Uh, and Second Chronicles 16 and 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Again, that same picture. Eyes running to and fro. He could look upon someone in a positive way. And who is he looking for? Those whose heart is loyal to him. So ensure our heart is loyal to God. Then pray for favor from God. It's the next one. Psalm 119 and 58. I have sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. And this one was interesting because I didn't, I honestly, I didn't know that verse was in there as I was preparing the lesson. I have never thought to pray for God's favor on my life before. Um, again, probably for me it's because I do often, have often associated the idea of favor with, with the crazies, the way off out there, right? And so the idea of praying for favor always seemed like being one of them. And yet here we see the psalmist, had, he had sought God's favor with all of his heart. So clearly it can't be a wrong thing to pray for. Pray for God's favor to rest on our lives, on our family, on our church, so that it's demonstrated in such a way that people see that it's God who's at work in our lives. I, I think, like we see that in like the book of Acts. You know, a lot of times in the book of Acts it says that the people were afraid of them, but they looked upon them with respect. Right? Because they knew what was going on in the church, and that just wasn't something that you could naturally orchestrate. That just had to be God powerfully at work. That's, that's faith. Uh, and then finally, seek wisdom from God. Uh, Proverbs 8, it says, Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. The me in Proverbs 8 is wisdom. So seeking and embracing God's wisdom positions us not only to find the life that comes through wisdom, but also to obtain, to receive favor from the Lord. 
We cannot effectively do the work of God without favor from God because it is God's favor that causes, essentially that causes things to work out our way, to go the way that they need to go so that we can obtain favor with city people, to obtain favor with the community, to, to have things happen in such a way so that people would say, I don't believe anything that church believes, but clearly there's something going on there that's bigger than any human could orchestrate. That, that all of that is God's favor at work, so we need God's favor then there has to be a commitment to God. Now their commitment to God is seen all throughout really the book of Ezra, uh, but in these chapters as well. They, they came back to God to do the work because of their commitment to God. They gave large sums of money when they got back because of their commitment to God. They started building the temple despite opposition because of their commitment to God. Then they, when they stopped, they started up again. And then opposition arises again and yet they keep doing the work because of their commitment to God. And they kept going until the temple was built uh, in what appears to be about four years because of their commitment to God. That's a long time to just consistently build. Right? They, didn't, they just kind of did it themselves. They, they were deeply, deeply committed to God. That's why they did all that they did. Everything that has happened in Ezra that they're doing is because of their commitment to God. And, and we cannot do the work of God without a commitment to God. Well, let me rephrase that. We will not do the work of God without a commitment to God. Because the work is hard. I mean, that's just what it boils down to. If you try to, to save the lost, to restore the prodigal, to heal the broken heart, to set captives free, to, to reconcile ruptured relationship, that is hard, often discouraging, spiritually and emotionally draining work. It's inconvenient. It doesn't come in the times when you want it to happen. It doesn't work when you think it should. There are all kinds of things, just physical, earthly, practical things that make the work hard. That doesn't even take into consideration the spiritual dimension of it with the world, the flesh, and the devil doing everything that they can to stop the work. It, It is hard. And without a commitment to God, we won't do it. We won't stick it out. We will quit the moment it gets too difficult for us. That's just what will happen without commitment. It has always taken commitment to God to do the work of God. Paul told Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I mean, you're going to do the work, Timothy. Guess what? You can't quit when it gets hard. Be willing to endure hardship. That takes commitment to God. The Apostle Paul goes on just a few verses later. And he says, remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. For which the gospel I suffer as for suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God cannot be chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. that They also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul said he was in jail, but that wasn't that big of a deal because he was willing to suffer all things for the sake of the the gospel, that the lost might be saved. That that is a commitment to God that causes him to say, yes, I'm in prison now. When I get out, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel and I may end up in prison again. And yet I'm still going to preach the gospel. I may be beaten, I may be shipwrecked, I may be bit by a viper, but I am not going to give up. I am going to preach the gospel, be willing to suffer all things because he was committed to God. It takes commitment to do the work of God. But there's positive with it as well. Not just that hard, you've got to do it. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Right? Jesus Christ has made us more than conquerors. Therefore, do the work. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because our labor is not in vain. Now, that doesn't mean everybody we share the gospel with is going to get saved. Every prodigal is going to be restored. Every broken heart is going to be healed. Every captive will be set free. Every ruptured relationship will be reconciled. That's not what it means. It does mean our efforts matter. It does mean that Jesus sees and Jesus cares and He keeps a record of what we've done. So all that we do in the work of the Lord, whether we see any earthly fruit or not, it has eternal significance. That's motivating to be, but in order to receive that, you have to be committed to the work. And then finally, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We can be committed because we know that we'll reap a harvest if we don't quit. But if we quit, we won't reap a harvest. I mean, that, that's just the way, that's what it's saying. If we're faithful, if we stay with it, if we do it, there will be some sort of a harvest that we reap. It may not be the way we think or what we expect. There will be something that, that's a promise from God's Word. But if we quit, we miss out on all the things that God was going to do in us and through us and for us. So we have to be committed. But we can be committed because we know eventually we'll see fruit from it. We will not do the work of God without commitment to God. It's just... It's just too hard. If we do it only because it's fun, it's not always going to be fun. If we do it only because it's easy, it'll not always be easy. If we do it only because it's convenient, it'll not always be convenient. If we do it only because there's always... Everybody we talk to comes to Jesus. Everybody we talk to ain't always going to come to Jesus. It's just hard. And it takes a commitment to God to say, I'm going to stick it out and I'm going to do the work no matter what. So we need that. That's a necessity to the Word of God, the favor of God, commitment to God, and finally, joy in God. I'll be honest, I was surprised to find joy as a theme in these verses as I studied it. But we do see it twice in Ezra 6. You see it first in verse 16, the children of Israel. Uh, yeah, 6 and 16, the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites. The rest of the sense of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Right? And then in verse 22, we see it twice. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. The Lord had made them joyful. So in the heart of the king of Assyria toward them, strengthened their hands in the work of the house of God of Israel. So they finished the work this time, and they were filled with joy because of it. And, and I thought that was interesting. Right? Because they didn't, they didn't get it done and say, finally, now I can go on to something else. Whew! Now I can tell them what's desperate housewives of Babylon. Right? They, they, didn't, they didn't act like that. They finished it and they were, they were rejoicing. It was worth it. This is awesome. This is great. Right? That, was, that was their attitude to seeing the things that God was doing in their midst. And that is, I believe, often the missing element in our lives as disciples of Jesus. Before so often, if we have a project we're doing, rather than when we finish to say, wow, that was awesome what God did, we say, well, whew, 
glad that's over with. Now I can go on to something else. Right? We, the, the idea of joy is missing so often that for many, the idea of a, of a, a joyful Christian sounds odd. For many, the idea of serving Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus is, is shaped by images of dour, angry people who not only live joyless, miserable lives, but seem to have the goal of making everyone else just as joyless and miserable as they are. It's like the guy from our church at Fort Gibson who said he envied Christians who were always smiling and happy because he typically looked and acted like he had been baptized in pickle juice. And that is often people's idea of us as Christians. And let's be honest. That's not necessarily an unfair caricature of us sometimes, is it? There's no joy in the Lord. There's no joy in the work of the Lord. There's no joy in the fruit of the work of the Lord. It's all a burden. We do what we have to do. We knuckle it under. I mean, even Paul, in the midst of all of his suffering, and I endure all things for the sake of the elect, he's saying, I rejoice with exceeding joy. Joy and rejoicing are Christian virtues. They are biblical words. The word joy is found like 203 times in English Bibles. Rejoice is found about 272 times. We also find all kinds of synonyms. We find about believers having delight, gladness, pleasure, and many other things. With all of those references to joy, rejoicing, gladness, and pleasure in the Lord, how tragic is it that so many of us as disciples live joyless lives, or even worse, our only joy comes in things that are not of God. Now, I'm not talking sinful things even necessarily. But I have greater joy in my sports team than in my Savior. I have greater joy in my whatever than I do in Christ. How tragic to look Outside of Jesus for joy. For truly the call to Christ, it is a call to joy. Look at what the Bible says. You'll show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Jesus we get the full measure of joy. Not, not the partial, but all of it. It, it fills And affects all of our lives. It fully satisfies our longing. And our joy for pleasure. This kind of joy. It moves us beyond. I have to. Got to. I need to. That is so often associated with our service. And our devotion to Jesus. And it brings us into an idea of. of I I want to. I get to. I'm glad to. I'm excited. To to. That's often missing. In our service. In our devotion to Jesus. And it's not just limited in in, in what Jesus does for us. But just also in in who he is. That he is the great and the awesome God. Who came to earth and willingly died for our sins. So that we could have life and life more abundantly. I mean, man, that's awesome. 
To think that, that the great and the awesome God of Isaiah 6 cared enough about me to do that. I mean, that's a, that's a joyful thought. And it ought to fill our lives with joy. One of my favorite verses on joy is this one. And I should have used the King James, but I actually prefer it. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with, in the King James, joy unspeakable, full of glory, inexpressible. It's just the joy so great we cannot adequately express it. The human tongue can't put to words the glory, the joy that comes through faith in Jesus. And the reason I like that verse so much is because that is like should be the key verse about joy. Because I love this verse. In His presence is the fullness of joy. But a lot of times we think in His presence, we're thinking on the mountaintop and by the still waters and in the peaceful streams and all of those kind of things where life's easy. Sure, there's joy there, but the joy inexpressible and full of glory here it's the joy, and this comes at the end of Peter talking about them enduring fiery trials for their faith. They haven't done anything wrong except love Jesus and live for Jesus. And they're suffering greatly. And in the midst of their suffering, they have a joy unspeakable that is full of glory. So if our joy is in anything but Jesus, it is going to be temporary. Because things change. Teams lose. A political party gets voted out. Things happen. And what happens when we've lost this thing that was the source of our joy? There's no joy. But with joy in Jesus, there is, even in the midst of fiery trials, joy unspeakable and full of glory. We will not do the work of God without joy in God. Because again, the work is hard. And in the end, we all live for pleasure. We live for what pleasures us. If it does not make me bring joy into my life, I won't do it long. If I don't enjoy it, I won't do it long. Even unless I just absolutely have to. Do we? I mean, if we do something, we start going to the gym and we don't enjoy it, what happens? We quit. If we start running and we don't enjoy it, what do we do? We quit. If we go to a job and we don't have any joy, any enjoyment, what do we do? We, we often find another job. But we, won't, we, we all live for pleasure. We just do. That's the reality of life. And we can find the pleasure that we seek if we look in the right place and we seek after Jesus and we, we find our joy and our pleasure in Him. And it's going to be that fullness. And I'm going to serve Him Yes, it's hard. Yes, there is sorrow, but there is still unspeakable joy. Yes, there's suffering, but yes, there is unspeakable joy. Only Jesus can give us the kind of joy that will keep us in the work. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how long it takes, no matter what else is going on. There is a greater joy than anything this world can offer us. Let's be dismissed in prayer.